Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. So as we come to the next passage in Matthew, we're coming to a section that looks at people's reactions to the birth of Christ. A part, this is partially linked, why I linked uh, So Will I, because we're talking in that song about our reaction to what God has done. But for just over 2,000 years, people have been reacting to Jesus. And I guess specifically his birth at Christmas, because it's still celebrated in most of the Western world. I recently saw The Case for Christ, because it's on Netflix in the US. Um, It's a book I read a long time ago, and a story I was familiar with. And I think some of you might be as well. But it's kind of this exact topic, a person's reaction to Christ. In The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, who's an influential journalist from Chicago, after his wife becomes a Christian, is shocked. And he even feels like she's betraying him and she's cheating on him with Jesus because he could tell she now has a higher loyalty. So he sets out to disprove Jesus' existence and the reliability of the Gospels. And he went into great depth with this. He visited experts talking about the reliability of the biblical text that we have today, talking about how Jesus may have survived the cross and finding out that he couldn't, talking about the resurrection and different things about it, all trying to disprove the reliability of the Gospels. And you know what he found in the end? He found faith. And so he published the conversations with these experts that he had in a book called The Case for Christ. His initial reaction was not positive, but over time as he searched for truth, he was led to a place where he found God. And I think that's a little bit similar maybe to what we're gonna see today, because Lee Strobel isn't the first smart man in history to look for God and to find Jesus. So today we're gonna read Matthew chapter two, verses one to 12, and see how majesty was acknowledged. But before we do that, Let's just briefly remember what we are studying here. This is the life of Jesus as recorded by Matthew, the tax collector turned apostle. He was very interested in Jesus as king, and he wrote to the Jews, focusing on how Jesus is the king of the Jews. So he constantly comes back to that theme of Jesus' kingship, and the book can be broken into five different sections based around that theme. And we are in section one, which is chapters one to 10, and it could be titled, The King Revealed. And we've seen already in Matthew how he showed us Jesus' kingship from his human side by tracing his human lineage down from his fathers and grandfathers, and then from his divine side, talking about Jesus' miraculous conception. And then Matthew briefly mentioned the birth of Jesus, which is an important part, of course, of the reveal of Jesus' kingship to the world. So we're taking up the story just after, maybe a year after, we don't know, Jesus' birth. But before we read what God's word records for us, let's just pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus' life, for his birth, for what he did for us. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word now, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, would move in our hearts to hear something from your word that we can apply to our lives, that we could become more Christ-like so we can be a bit like these wise men that we're going to look at, um, following you and having faith in you. 
So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So first one does a lot of scene setting for us. We're first told that this took, event took place after Jesus was born. In fact, it was probably quite some time after Jesus was born. We'll see later, next month, that Herod estimated Jesus to be somewhere around two years old. So this was probably a year after Jesus' birth, but we don't really know. Whatever the exact age of Jesus, we can be sure that his parents and he were no longer living in a stable. He no longer had a manger for his bed, as is shown in the traditional Christmas picture, the nativity scene. We just put them there because that's convenient, but it isn't accurate. And the second thing we're told in scene setting is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem has a long and important history in Israel. It was where Benjamin, one of the heads of one of the tribes of Israel, was born. It was where Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, died. And it was where David, the greatest king of Israel, was born. And so it makes sense that Jesus, who David has often seen to foreshadow in the way his life went, would be born where his greatest ancestor was born. Because of its link to David, Bethlehem was called the town of David. And the city of David then is Jerusalem, because David took it from the Jebusites and made it his capital. But he didn't move that far. It's estimated that Jerusalem's gates were five to six miles from Bethlehem's gates. The next thing we can notice is that it says that it's in the days of Herod. I could talk for a while about Herod, but he becomes more important in the story later on, so we're going to talk about him next month. So for now, we'll focus on this idea of the days of Herod. Herod the Great, as he's known in history, was the first king in the Herodian dynasty. This royal line was one supported and helped be established by the Romans, and it replaced the Hasmonean dynasty, which were... When the Jews rebelled against the Greeks, they set up their own rulership and had some sort of relative autonomy till the Romans came in. You can read a little bit more about that history 
in the books of Maccabees. Um, some Bibles have them, but those Bibles, if you do decide to read it, bear in mind they're not accepted as, as authoritative or divinely inspired um, by pretty much any element of the church. So Herod was established as, a king, as the king of Judea by the Romans and went on to build his own fame and his own claim to the throne and his own lineage and his own line. He was king from 36 or 37 BC up until 4 BC. If you're following along closely, you might have noticed something. If you haven't noticed, it's okay, I'm going to tell you. We've seen that Jesus was born in the days of Herod, but Herod died in 4 BC. And it's pretty common knowledge that Jesus was born in the year zero, so that would be four years after the death of Herod. The date of Jesus' birth was calculated by a monk sometime in the Middle Ages. And to be fair to him, he was very close. He got within 10 years of the actual date. We Now, most scholars believe that Jesus was born around 7 BC, and it wouldn't have been in December. The last bit of verse 1 tells us that the wise men arrived from the east. Other translations call them magi or magi. And one goes very simple and says men who studied the stars, which is certainly something we can know about them. The word magi itself, or magi, is used to denote certain follows of a religion called Zoroastrianism. And that's the word that the Greek in the Greek of the text actually uses. It says magi. They lived in and around Babylon, like Iraq today, and were very interested in astronomy. They believed that the stars told them stories about things going on on the earth. So astrology and star signs and that kind of thing are kind of watered down modern descendants of these ideas. It's also where we get magician from, but that's probably a misunderstanding of what they were doing because they were doing astronomy and studying the stars and things. And to people it might look like magic. And if you think of the book of Daniel, the king has a dream in it and he calls in his wise men who would be a kind of an early form of these magi, possibly even magi, who knows. And he asks them not only to give him an interpretation of the dream, but he also doesn't really remember what the dream was. He just has a feeling he had a dream that was important. And so he asks them to tell him what the dream was and then give them, him the interpretation, but none of them can. And then, of course, the Lord uses Daniel to tell him that dream and interpret that dream. But that shows us that magi were probably some of the people considered to be the wisest in the country that they came from. Maybe they even worked for their king. We can't know. But we can know that wise men is a good description of them, and for more than one reason. The end of verse 1 tells us that the Magi came to Jerusalem. Somehow they know that a man who is to be king of the Jews has been born, based on what they've seen in the stars. We'll talk a little bit more about the star as we follow it from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. But just imagine this. These foreign men turn up in Jerusalem's palace and ask where the king of the Jews has been born. It's possible they believed the king was born in the palace, but it doesn't seem that way from when you read it. And when we talk more about Herod next time, we'll see they probably weren't talking about his family anyway. I'm sure they didn't visit 
for any of his son's births. There's a lot of myths surrounding the wise men, especially from songs we sing at Christmas time. Some of those songs call them the three kings, and there's no evidence that they were kings, so they were probably servants of their king. Other songs say there were three of them. We have no idea how many of them there were. But number three comes from the gifts that they brought, because there was three of them. And as well as this, there's nowhere in the Bible that they are named. We have no idea how many of them came, let alone what their names were. We can only say for sure that there's more than one, because the passage uses plurals. So there's a lot we can tell about them. There's one thing we can see pretty clearly, and it should be a challenge to us. They see a star that they believe to be a message from God. And when they see it, they follow it. When it comes to doing things that God is asking you to do, what are you like? I've been reading a lot about the weakness of the church in this day and age, and it's because we aren't obedient and we aren't faithful to God when he calls. If you were called to go to another country by God and to walk up to the king of that country and talk to him about Jesus, would you do it? I think a lot of how we react to things is comes at, when we react to things that God asks us to do comes out of a place of fear. But he said that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of power, of love, and of self-control. And sadly, I don't think we see much of those things in the modern church. So as we're still kind of vision casting for what Calvary Limerick is going to be, I hope and pray that we'll be, be a community that is not controlled by a spirit of fear, but one that is moved to action by the power and the love of God, manifesting that to the world around us, and then one of self-control, as God promised that we could be and would be in his word. But the wise men do this. They come to Herod, and they look for the king, asking the present king where the king has been born. And note that these guys are Gentiles. This begins one of the major themes of Matthew's gospel. He includes a number of stories of Jesus and Gentile people. Although he's writing to Jews about the king of the Jews, he wanted to be sure that they understood that the gospel of grace is for all of us, not just for the Jews. We should take note that there was probably greater faith in these men than there was in many in Israel at that time. There's a verse in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which has long been recognized as a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Who knows how these magi might have had knowledge of this verse, but they did. And they acted on it, and they came to Jerusalem seeking the king of the Jews. And I want you to notice as well the title that they use. They actually call him the king of the Jews. In Matthew's gospel, though his whole thing is about Jesus being the king of the Jews, he never uses this title besides for right here until the crucifixion. That's what Jesus is charged with. He's charged with being the king of the Jews. This shows, I think, a greater level of faith than we could even think from just reading it when you know that that's a thing linked to being the Messiah. Michael Green was a commentator on the Bible. He said this about it. I find their faith, their insight, their wholehearted search 
and adoring worship utterly amazing. Speaking of the wise men. And it is. Here are these Gentiles, these non-Israelites, and they have more faith than the people of Israel. Jewish people saw Gentiles as the scum of the earth. And some rabbis even wrote that God made Gentiles, and I'm sure most of us are Gentiles, to be fodder for the fires of hell. There was even a court outside the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles couldn't go any further, couldn't get any closer to God in that outer court. The Gentiles shouldn't be the ones with the greater faith. However, the Gospels show us again and again that the Gentiles that were seekers of God, who were God-fearers, are often the ones who find Jesus the fastest. And it starts here with the wise men from the East. Note what verse 3 says about Herod's reaction and all of Jerusalem with him. They heard this news from the wise men and they were troubled. The wise men came to worship this baby, knowing there was something special about him. And like I said earlier, you can be sure they didn't come when Herod's sons, three of whom would later take over the kingdom, split between them. They didn't come when they were born. They made this journey for a child that was not born into the royal family. And they gave a title that's one of the messianic titles in the Old Testament to this child. And note the difference, the contrast between the two of them that Matthew is showing us. These Gentiles are excited and they travel really far to worship. These people of Jerusalem, which is five to six miles gate to gate from Bethlehem, were troubled by the news. They're not going anywhere. Herod calls together his own wise men, the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and he asks them, where is Christ to be born? This shows that they understood something beyond what we might understand when the king of the Jews I think if I was standing in the court and the wise men came in and said, where's the king of the Jews? I would probably have pointed to Herod and said, there. But they understood this title that they're using is a messianic title. It's a title about the Christ. Christ, of course, is the Greek word for Messiah. It's not his last name. Mary wasn't Mary Christ and Joseph wasn't Joseph Christ. They didn't have last names in those days. They were identified probably Joseph would be the son of, I think his father was Simon. Jesus would have been the son of Joseph. So Christ is Jesus' title. And it was one that Herod recognized that the wise men were using and had his chief priests and his scribes look for where Christ would be born. And notice what the chief priests and the scribes tell Herod. They said... In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They actually quote Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 from the Old Testament. Micah lived roughly 800 years before Jesus was born. Yet there he is saying that the Messiah, that Jesus, is going to be born in Bethlehem. And remember verse 1, that's exactly where Jesus was born. This is another of the themes of Matthew's Gospel. We spoke about how he portrays Gentiles, but here we see the theme of fulfilled promises. In our first study in this series, we talked about how God is faithful and how God keeps his promises. And we saw that through the genealogy of Jesus going down from his fathers to him. And we see it here again. God promised that his Messiah, his son, our Saviour, would be born in Bethlehem. 
And lo and behold, he's born in Bethlehem. But here we have the baddies of the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes, recognizing it. They're the ones who know where Jesus is going to be born. And today's topic and this sermon, as you may have seen on social media or the sign on the way in, is called Majesty Acknowledged. Wise men acknowledge the king in a similar way to how Lee Strobel eventually did. But there is another reaction to the king in this section, and we shouldn't miss it, because I think the majority of people around us have this reaction. It's the reaction of the religious leaders of the Jewish people. They know that Christ has been born, but they ignore him. A six-mile journey, they could have gone and worshipped him themselves, but they ignored Jesus. They ignored the one that God sent to them. I think the majority of people you will meet are people who are ignoring Jesus. It's not that they are opposed to him, like we will see Herod was, but then by not being for him, they'll find themselves against him and being opposed to him. But they don't think they are. It's more that they don't care. People are set in their ways, they're happy with their lives, and they don't realize they're on that wide road to hell. They want to keep things the same way, because if they acknowledge the king, like the wise men did, it would mean disruption to their lives. It would mean things would have to change. Their highest loyalty would no longer be to themselves or their spouse, like Whitley Strobel's wife, but would be to Christ. But the gospel is the greatest truth in the world, and all people need it. We as Christians are called to be Jesus' witnesses, and we said in our very first service that one of Calvary Limerick's cores would be reaching out to others and to stop them ignoring Jesus. People need Jesus whether they realize it or not. And they need us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to help them see where in their lives that they need the gospel. So that's part of what we want to do. We want to help people to stop ignoring Jesus like these religious leaders did and to accept him as their Lord and Savior. Before Herod sends the wise men on his way, he calls to them and he brings them away secretly and he learns when the star, when they became aware of that star in the sky. And this will be important information from him later when he launches a plan to oppose Jesus himself. He also instructs them to find Jesus, to send word to him so that he can go and worship as well. On a first reading, we might think, oh wow, this guy, he's not as, as bad as his wise men that he has around him, his scribes and the religious leaders. It sounds like he's going to go and worship the Messiah himself. But when we look into his life more closely, we'll see that he's nothing but a wolf in sheep's clothing. And as the wise men set out from Jerusalem, the star is on the move again. They have followed it from the east to Jerusalem, and the people think they came from around the area of Babylon, meaning that it was moving in roughly a southwestern direction. But Bethlehem is pretty much directly south of Jerusalem, meaning that the star changed direction. So it's safe to say that this is no ordinary star. It's something that hadn't always been in the sky, because if it was, the wise men would be coming to Jerusalem regularly asking about the birth of the king of the Jews. And in this time period as well, when Julius Caesar died, his funeral coincided with a supernova. And it was seen in the sky above his funeral, and people believed it was him like ascending to be a god, or going back to be with the gods. And so people were very interested in stars when it came to royalty, because of things like that. 
We can't say for sure what exactly the star was, but I want to give you three theories. The first theory is that it was Halley's Comet, which still flies around us today, which passed that area going in that rough direction, southwest, southwesterly direction, in around 11 BC. But that date seems too early. The second is that in 7 BC, there was a coming together in the sky of the planets Jupiter and Saturn, which would have looked like a bright new star in the area of Pisces in the sky. It happened three times in 7 BC, and that might explain how it looked to be moving, because the Earth is actually moving, so it would appear in different places in the sky thus three times in that year. And why they think this is significant is Pisces is generally seen to be the end of the journey of the sun, so then it's goes back to the start again. So it represents old things becoming new. Jupiter is the biggest of the planets, so it's the king of the planets. So it re represents kings. And then Saturn was considered to be a symbol of Israel. So then these three things together are a changing of the king of Israel. And the third is that it was a totally supernatural event. Maybe an angel in the sky. Something God caused to happen specifically for the purpose of announcing Jesus' birth in a similar way to how in Luke's gospel there's an angel chorus mentioned above the fields of Bethlehem. So a specific supernatural event that God caused to celebrate the birth of his son. It's possible that God used other means that I haven't read about or a combination of those means to get that star in that sky and get those wise men to Bethlehem. Notice that the star, however God decided to do it, gets them right to Jesus' house. It stopped right above where Jesus was. And the Bible says when they saw the star, having stopped at a home, they knew they must be at their destination. And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy. They didn't just rejoice, they rejoiced exceedingly. And they didn't just rejoice exceedingly, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. For me, I find this challenging. Life is tough. The gospel is very familiar to me. I wonder how many of you feel those two things are true for you as well. And I think this combination often means I'm not rejoicing exceedingly with great joy at the things of God that much. In Revelation, when Jesus is writing to the church of the Ephesians, he says that they're doing a great number of works like they've always done for the Lord, but they've lost their first love, Jesus himself. I don't want any of us to lose our first love. I hope that as we slowly work through Matthew, some of the wonder and the awe of what God did in bringing his son to this earth, Jesus' life, how he lived for us and died for us, will capture our hearts and minds again. So we'll find ourselves rejoicing exceedingly with great joy at what God has done for us and is doing in our lives. And that's part of why we have music at both sides of the sermon, so that we can worship God in light of what we've looked at in his word, that we can respond to him with joy, rejoicing with exceeding and great joy um, at what he's done, because we've just had time to read his word and study it. So in verse 11, it says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They got there, they see Jesus with his mother, and they worship him. And then they present him with these three luxurious gifts. 
Mary and Joseph were not very well-to-do people, so these gifts would have seemed really extravagant. And these three gifts themselves are not insignificant. They symbolize who Jesus is, what he had come to do, and even what it would cost him. You've probably heard it said that the devil is in the details. Well, whoever said that was a gombean. The truth is, God is in the details. He even orchestrated these gifts to tell the story of his son. Gold is a very obvious one. It's something we associate even today kind of with royalty. And so a, go a gift of gold would be very fitting for a king. And it's probably mentioned first because, of course, Matthew's emphasis is on Jesus as king. Frankincense was the main incense used in the temple by the priests. And Jesus, of course, is the true priest, the one who really represents us before God. And then finally, there's myrrh. That was used by Jewish people to embalm their dead, pointing to the cost that Jesus and the price that Jesus would have to pay in his life for our sin. Do you want me to turn it off? Okay. <laughs> we just turn off the AC. <laughs> so, gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh tell the story of Jesus' life. God even used the gifts that his son was going to get to tell his story. This baby, as we know, but we sometimes forget, because the images of Christmas we see every year, he grew up. And when he did, these three gifts represented, represented his life, came, out, came to play out in his life. As we go through his story, we see he is the authority of the king, though he never sat on a throne. He is, the, he is the one who brought the word of God to the people and he represented them before God in prayer, which he continues to do today, seated at the right hand of God. He's the one who lived the perfect life. And this is important because he fulfilled God's law. He never sinned. That made it so he could be our payment. Because of God's law that we cannot keep, we need a savior, and that savior is Jesus. The myrrh that represented his death speaks to us of the cross of Calvary and how he died for our sin to pay that price that we couldn't pay to go in our place. It reminds us of his resurrection and the fact that he is alive today and seated at God's right hand in heaven representing us to our loving father. He's my savior and I'm a sinner saved by grace. I hope he's your savior too. After their visit, the wise men, however many of them there were, had to begin the journey home. If they came from the area of Babylon, which is where many people think is most likely, it means they traveled to Jerusalem for about 60 days, two months. It's funny that one of the motivations for having Calvary Limerick here, very close to UL, is to give the students a place that they can go to church because a lot of the other churches are across town. Imagine if they had to travel 60 days. Imagine if you had to travel 60 days for church. Like we, are, we live in such a blessed time in history that we can have local churches where, around where we live. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to meet with other believers and to worship God. While I was in the States at the pastor's conference, someone could not get over 
the fact that the nearest Calvary Chapel from here was a one and a half hour drive with these wise men travelled for two months and they were good men I think it's safe to say so that when Herod told them that they would that they should come back that they would go back to him and they would let him know where Jesus was God had to step in he had to send them a dream just like with Joseph and God can speak in dreams it's one of the many ways that he can speak to us so God tells them to go home by another route not to go back to Jerusalem not to tell Herod where baby Jesus is and they don't they obey the voice of God they go a different way so next time we're going to be looking at a third reaction to Jesus Herod's reaction and what he does to be anti-majesty when it comes to Jesus he just wants him gone and we look a little bit more about who he was and his background too but for today we've seen the reaction of these Gentile wise men these magi from the east we have seen the first people that Matthew records to come to faith in Jesus but of course we know in Luke's gospel that there's the shepherds on the hills of Bethlehem who come to faith but shepherds in David's town having faith in God is something that you'd expect it's practically a description of David a shepherd on the hills of Bethlehem these men these gentile men they are surprised but a God, God, our God is full of surprises. I hope and pray that you will be looking for the surprises of God this week. That he will surprise you. And I hope you will allow him to stretch your faith. That if he calls you will listen. And that you will be surprised by him. I pray your reaction to Jesus this next month will be one of excitement and rejoicing with great joy. And that like the wise men in this story, that by your step of faith towards him... He will just bless your relationship with him and show you his love, power and grace in this next month. Let's pray.